At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are rolling live. I've been looking forward to this one. Got another Patricia in the house wearing the DP gear. And a quick plug for Joel Turnbull. If you like these dirty Patricia shirts and you think you're mad enough to wear one, get a hold of Joel Turnbull at Blue Beacon. Is it Blue Beacon Clothing or Blue Beacon Apparel? I don't know. Google that shit. If I can find it, I'll throw it in the links. How's it going, Brandon? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Let's go, Brandon. Sounds good. Let's go. Good to see you, and I appreciate you being on here. The um, the Brotherhood of Patricias. It's one of a kind. That's one for of sure. a kind. VP, brother. You have listened to every show I've ever done. Every single podcast, yep. Why? Um, well, originally I first found it. I was sitting there playing some video games and... Listening to Spotify music and an ad for Operation Tango Romeo came on. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. That sounds like a pretty cool podcast. So I went and looked it up, and I found out that it was a Patricia running it. I'm like, oh, sweet. Got to listen to this. Then I found out you lived out in Okotoks, not far from me. I'm like, wow, got to listen to this. So I I didn't want to just listen to that one episode. I went back to the very beginning. Um, I subscribed on Spotify and then got the Apple podcast and went back to episode one and listened to every single episode. First started when I was just sitting there playing video games and um, evolved from there to every single time I see one popping up, I sit down and take a time just to listen to it. And but why? What is it about the show that uh, um, keeps you coming back? It, it's, Why hasn't it not gone stale or hearing the same old, same old anymore? It, it's helpful. Um, I feel like every single time, like you could listen to something a thousand times and every time you hear it, there's something new. Um, whether it's just a, a little piece of information or a revelation or um, something that resonates that didn't resonate before. And the minute it hits, it's exactly what you needed at that moment. And that's what I found with this show. Like there, there's, I've, I've had, I've listened to it when I've had a really bad day, um, such as life with, uh, living with post-traumatic stress injury. Um, I, and I've listened to it on my awesome days and it's actually been my inspiration for joining OSIS and, um, becoming involved with that. And even from there I went and, uh, created the, so you found the show before you found OSIS? Uh, Yes, I did. Huh? Well, how about that? So uh, when did you start um, as a peer helper with uh, OSIS? And uh, tell us what OSIS stands for. So OSIS is the Operational Stress Injury Social Support. Um, The idea behind it is create a peer support network um, where it's you're sitting in a group with peers, not chain of command, not leadership, not 
um, psychologists or psychiatrists. It's not therapy. The idea is just to have a check-in, talk with guys that have been there, done that. Um, creates that safe space and allows you to just open up. If you don't want to share anything and you just want to talk about the weather, then absolutely. Um, if you wanted to sit down and actually talk about what's going on with you for the last two weeks or just you're stuck in a funk with your your symptoms and you don't know how to get out of it, maybe somebody else was there before so they could tell you what they did. And um, if you want to try, go for it. If not, and you just hang out, be a dude. I've heard veterans um, poo-poo the idea of peer support, not go to one. Or they go to one and then they, they don't go back because they're like, well, just a bunch of people whining and complaining. And that's their take on it. Why do you think they, what, have you heard people say the same thing? I and, have, yeah. Now, why do you think that happens? Um, I, I think it goes back to just how the culture of the military, like for most of us. Um, I, I know when I was in, nobody wanted to talk about feelings. That was touchy-feely bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the stigma was still very much there. Um, I, I'm not sure about the modern army. I'm sure it's changed quite a bit since I got out in 2015. Um, but it, it's an uncomfortable subject for most people on a normal day, let alone us warriors that have been there, done that, seen some some things or did some stuff. Like It's something you don't want to talk about. Yeah. You'd rather just... You don't like asking for help. You don't like reaching out. So by saying, hey, I want to sit down and talk about my feelings and what's going on, um, it the, the side effect to that is you have to open yourself up and be vulnerable. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They want to keep that that warrior ethos going and that, that strong outer reflection that you keep putting out to everybody. Well, it keeps going back to the, and that's what the stigma is. Yeah, The stigma is the idea that if I'm having issues, it's a weakness, which is bullshit. It's a natural human response. It's like saying, and you've heard me say it many, many times, you get your legs blown off. That's not because you got weak shins. No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're not really in control of that. Nobody, nobody, no matter how tough you think you are, nobody's immune. No. Nobody. And uh, the toughest sons of bitches are actually the ones that are happy-go-lucky and and, and easy-going. On my tour, there was uh, one guy sticks out in my mind. It was his third tour. He never did the tough guy routine, never told you how tough he was or, you know, uh, told fight stories or any of that. He's always the happy-go-lucky guy. Never, ever played the tough guy uh, role. He's on his third tour. Prior, prior to that, he did a double tour. So that's a lot of war in a very ugly place. And uh, of the 10 other people that did the double tour, by the time he came to the third, he's the only one that's left standing. The rest of them are dead or in uh, institution. And that's just too much goddamn war. But he survived it from my perspective because he is the happy-go-lucky, easygoing guy. You know, because he doesn't do the tough guy routine. Um, on his second tour, they were under a mortar attack while they're in the bunker. 
So they're all bunkered up, all in, in the sandbag hotel. Motor, mortars are coming in. Pretty scary because it's not a training exercise, and those flying bombs are coming for you, man. And um, it, it's a pretty big boom when they go off in your front step. And uh, the guy that, and I knew this guy. I, I, w- I won't say his name because I can't remember it, but uh, I wouldn't say it anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember being scared of him, though, in the 3rd Battalion. He's not a big guy. You know, um, I'm only five nine, which would have made him five seven and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, stocky, square jawed. You know, always scowling guy. And there's just something about him because he's always angry. Um, but uh, uh, he was a bit of a bully, right? But I always thought, man, that that's the hard man there. That's the tough guy. He was curled up in a ball, crying, pissing himself, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, crying crying for his mother as the mortars are coming in which is not an unreasonable response no but that's why he's a bully because he knew at some level he always knew that that's who he actually is Mm -hmm. so he'd put on the hard face because his greatest fear which is the greatest fear of so many men is that somebody's going to find out that i am not this hard man that i am weak or vulnerable that i am scared and when it came out and in front of everybody, you know, and you know what? I don't remember anybody that made fun of him or thought less of him because of it. I, I don't, I, I, I don't remember anybody talking about him that way ever. It was just like, okay, we got you, man. It's all right. Mm-hmm. You're in Afghanistan. Yes, I was. Once, twice. Just once. Just once. That's enough. I was there on uh, Canada's final tour in Afghanistan. So Task Force 213, Roto-3, um, op attention. Um, I was there from July 1st, technically in country, two days prior to that, um, until the 10th of December. Um, our, our tour was, wasn't was as crazy as a lot of the other guys. Like I, I joined When I joined in 2008, that was right when the 08 tour was going on. Um, Got a lot of buddies that served on that tour. Um, I, I'm not sure what roto that was. Um, but that's what I, I wanted to go and see and be a part of. I wanted that baptism by fire. And I didn't get that on my tour. Most of my time I was forced protection driving for a drive team. Just convoys in and out all over Kabul. And um, sometimes two, three convoys a day, which... You have to be, me as a driver, I had to be hypervigilant 24-7. Oh, that's serious pucker factor. I was a driver in Croatia, man. Mm-hmm. And um, we didn't have IEDs. They were all legit landmines. Mm-hmm. It's the same shit, though. Goes boom, wrecks your day. And uh, <laughs> yep. goes boom, wrecks your day. Any go boom on you? Um, one in particular just missed our convoy. Um on the 22nd of October, I still remember the date. Um, we left our, our camp on our third convoy of the day, heading over to an American camp. And um, as we were pulling down the street right away, I noticed, uh, here, here's a bit of war porn, just giving you the warning. Okay, plug um, your ears. <laughs> uh, we, we started, I, I turned left out of our camp. Uh, we were stationed on a British camp called Camp Suter. 
And as we were pulling out um, the road there, we called Purple Route. So as we were driving down, it's this pock. Wait a second, is this a Wayne Raid? Uh, almost. <laughs> <laughs> they got a Purple Route, I'm pretty sure. It was uh, like the road there was all dirt and all, well, it's kind of like driving on Alberta roads during the winter time. It's all pockmarked and potholed and um, you're, you're driving down this road and usually at this time of the day, there's a bunch of kids just getting out of school. There was nobody. The roads were dead, which was pretty, pretty big sketch. sign. Yeah, right away. That was combat like, indicator. Oh, they know one. something that we don't know. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. Got to be more vigilant now. Um, as we started going down the road, I seen this Toyota Corolla on the wrong side of the road, slow creeping, and which isn't uncommon in Afghanistan at all. <laughs> you see some of the weirdest shit. Um, but th- this car was just slow creeping down the wrong side of the road, so there, there was combat indicator number two. Got a bit closer. Noticed that all the wheels were riding really low. Um, like the tires oh. were like right on the... On the fenders of the vehicle. It's loaded full of fertilizer or yeah. something. It, it was loaded full of something, which again, isn't uncommon in Afghanistan. Most of the vehicles, they don't have good mechanics. They don't have spare parts to fix their suspension. But something just felt off. Yeah. Spidey senses started tingling. Got a bit closer and then I seen the guy. And uh, you could see the tan line on his face from where his beard was. Clean shaven. Um, he was wearing pristine white robes, which is... Oh, fuck. So right away you knew he richly bathed and did everything he needed to do. What's with the beard shaving? I didn't know about that bit. Uh, they, they clean themselves and prepare themselves for the afterlife so that when they meet Allah, they are perfectly clean. So they wear ritualistic robes and so they, they shave. So this is the moment you know he's about to go boom. Yeah. That he's a suicide bomber. Uh, what do you do? Yell contact? Like, what do you do? Oh, I followed my SOPs right off the bat. I, Which are? Uh, I yelled to my crew commander sitting in my driver's seat, or passenger seat, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not in an armored fighting vehicle at all. What we're, are you driving? We're driving Toyota Land Cruisers that oh, are up armored. So, um, this we, is going to suck. Yeah. So right away, I, I started instinctively flinching, lowering my right shoulder to kind of absorb the, the blow. Um. Not that it would have probably mattered. Um, We were able to ride around with no helmets on in our vehicles for two reasons. One was they were distinguishing. We were trying to be low-vis in our land cruisers as opposed to an armored fighting vehicle. Um, So it gave you that that kind of disguise. Um, A lot of us were allowed to grow beards from our group, I had some stubble on my face, so I, I think maybe that might have been Get to feel like an operator. Yeah, it was kind of cool. For a while there, we tried wearing ball caps, and they're like, no, you're not operators. You can't do that. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. But the right. Oakleys. Yeah. You can wear the Oakleys? Uh, yeah, I had my Oakley sunglasses. <laughs> Still gotten shit for it. <laughs> the, uh, don't, don't, don't walk around the base with the RSM walking around seeing you do that. But, uh, yeah, that as we got closer... I, I yelled out to my crew commander, suicide bomber right side, I'm punching it. He's like, yep, Raj. And he started hitting the, the PRR to tell our second car who's right behind us. Um, so we punch it. And as we start going by, me and the bomber lock eyes. And I, I remember that look to this day. Like, it, it haunts me. I've had nightmares about it. Um, it it's one of the, those looks that you can't read their emotion. Dead. It's like black eyes. 
And like, I've only seen it in two other people to this day. And right away, the minute I see it, boom, spidey senses go off. Mm. But we locked eyes and I looked at him for what you know, felt like, what, what felt like 15 minutes. It was milliseconds. Yeah. Um, as, as we drove by him, I kept looking at him and at that point I was like, okay, this is it. I'm fine with this. I, I was fully accepting of my death right then and there. I was like, I'll be Canada's 159th casualty. Okay. Rather die a hero than live long enough to become the villain. Um, but no boom. I'm like, what the hell? So I look back at my second vehicle. I see a second set of headlights peeking out off the driver's side of our second car. And just as my head, my eyes went out back, to the, like out the windshield, I felt the boom. Dust and everything started enveloping the vehicles. And uh, we just, it, it was so intense, I actually like left my body for milliseconds. It, astral projection, whatever you want to call it. Like I was actually looking down. I was like, oh, looking wow. around like, wow, this is death. This isn't bad. I don't feel any pain. There's no suffering. There's, I don't feel my body or anything. You're just like a camera, just looking around. There's no judgment, no bias, no nothing. I'm like, oh, all right then. This is, this is all right. I'm good with this. And then just as fast as that happened, boom, I was back in my body and still driving. I'm like, holy shit. I'm still fucking driving. And right away I was like, like Dr. Strange knocking you out of your body. Exactly like that. It, It felt like that. Yeah. And, uh, I, right away, my, my main concern was for our second car. I'm like, fuck, they were closer to the blast. Like, we were a good distance away, but you still felt the concussion of the blast. Oh, yeah. Um, look, keep looking in my driver's side mirror. All of a sudden, I see the headlights pop through. I'm like, thank fuck. They made it. They made it. Miraculously, neither of our cars were damaged in any way, shape, or form. And all four of us walked away, no injuries. So this guy uh, died and didn't take anybody with him. He ended up hitting the the second set of headlights behind our second car was an American convoy. So we got somebody. He hit an American convoy of Suburbans. They were go figure. The Americans decided. No, did to, your were your comms linked with their comms? So when no. they went, so they didn't. So they didn't hear you. No, our, our comms were tied between our cars and to our talk. So as soon as you called it. Uh, called contact the the second car knew it but the americans didn't right well shit yeah so like that's some survivor guilt i hold on to to today Um, did some of the americans die on that one i don't know um i i was at the american camp camp phoenix when they were uh heloing in uh, american soldiers and an afghan family that was practically wiped off the face of the earth um, there was an Afghan family in a taxi that was riding by just as the guy detonated. Um, a father, a mother, two of the three kids, and the driver of the vehicle were killed. One of the kids was taken to Camp Phoenix for initial assessment, and I think they transported her to uh, Kaya, the Kabul International Airfield, the NATO side, um, where they had like the civilian hospital. Um, yeah, like that, that stuff still kind of hits home. 
every sec twenty second of October is still kind of kind of a wreck. Yeah, it's your Remembrance Day. Yeah, and like like I said, it's one of those things that like I forgot about. I forgot the full extent, all those details for almost five years. Yeah. And then I, I, when I started getting, uh, started using medical cannabis, I, I start going for these walks every night and I'd go for five, six kilometer walk just around my town. And all of a sudden it hit. I remembered everything because up to that point, it was this, my my brain's way of disconnecting was oh your tour wasn't bad there was nothing happening you were okay <laughs> i remembered the blast but it was as if i was hundreds of miles away yep. like you just seen the little mushroom cloud in the distance went oh what's that i've seen one of those yeah it's like oh yeah that's interesting cool yeah but it, it didn't click right away like i to this day i don't remember who was in my convoy I don't know. I don't remember who my crew commander was, whether it was a Patricia in our drive team or mm-hmm. one of the MSE ops. I don't remember who was in our second car. I don't remember any of that. But what I do remember is the sights, the smells, the taste. Fuck, is that familiar? Yeah. Like, I still remember the taste of cordite, <clears throat> uh, of, <laughs> and, and mixed with the poo dust of Afghanistan. Yeah. I still remember that taste and. Mm, every time like i went out hunting a while back and uh not this year and when i took a shot dust kicked up because there was no snow at the time dust kicked up and that cordite mixed with the dust boom i was fully back there yeah full it was almost like i was teleported right back to that moment yeah the uh the the sense of smell the olfactory triggers are so powerful brings you right back there yeah it's un- incredible. Like th- there's another funny little side tangent, like going on some of those walks, you'll be walking past people's houses and smell all the scents of different houses. Some, sometimes it's different bounce sheets or mm. laundry that they're doing. And it's, it's funny because there's certain smells that remind me of different aspects of my childhood based on the year. Like my mom would use certain scent like different uh febreze or certain scents right and then the minute you'd walk past and smell that same scent boom all those memories from that time come flooding back and it's like a walk down memory lane it's incredible it's amazing how the mind's able to do that the journey that you've been on you must be so much more aware of what your mind is up to and what your body's up to Absolutely. Um, not always. Uh, I, I find a lot of time I still get into that dissociative mode as uh, one of my, one of the symptoms fallbacks where you just, you disconnect and then all of a sudden you're spinning and you don't understand why you're spinning out. And it takes, sometimes it takes a couple of days before I go, wait a second, I've been here. Yeah. I've been here. Calm your shit, sort your life out. Okay. Back to the basics. So I go back to what I learned in my uh, trauma resiliency program with Wounded Warriors. Tell me about that. Um, so I did my TRP1. Um, I forget the exact date. I think it was March, April timeframe in 2018. Um, 2018, 2019-ish timeframe. Um, and when I did it, it, you sit in a group at the time. 
now I'm not sure how it works with COVID. Um, but you sit in a group, we had about 10 participants and then you had two therapists. Um, and they, they walk you through PTSD and some treatments or, or some, not treatments, that's the wrong term, um, some tools that you can use. Um, so on your TRP1, it's uh, four days and you sit in the group and they teach you what PTSD is, what some of the signs and symptoms are, how uh, they look at it from the psychological perspective. Then they look at it from like a spiritual perspective as well in a very small way. I'm um, talking about uh, like mindfulness meditation and how helpful it is. And they, they, they at, during your TRP one, they do not touch at one at any point your traumatic experiences. In fact, they, they make it a rule. Do not talk about it. No war porn. Yeah. You don't want to trigger anyone. Um, cause it's already pretty intense. After my TRP one, about two weeks after I was still like shaking, just fired up from it. It was just that because I, I had to, for the first time, break down and be vulnerable and realize shit, something's going on. Like, yeah, this, that initial diagnosis when I got it in 2016, I felt like it was a death sentence. I would have preferred to get a cancer diagnosis. Why? I, I just, I, I've seen what, like with, uh, with cancer, you hear all these success stories with people who beat cancer, right? You don't hear a whole lot with people who beat PTSD. So that was, I, I know it's wrong because there's no conversation prior to that point. At the time when I got it, or maybe there was, and I just didn't hear it at the time, I was terrified because I was still very much in that stigma mentality of the Canadian forces. I just got out of the forces. Um, I, I was 3 bead in uh, 2015, so I, I had my baby on the way. What does 3 bead mean? Uh, so, so a 3 b is a medical release. I, I ended up uh, blowing out my back on a helicopter rappel on a Winter X right after tour. But what a great way to get an injury. It's a pretty cool story. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, you didn't, you didn't trip in the shower. It's like, well, you see, I was rappelling out of this helicopter. Carrying a C6 strapped to me. It was, it was oh, badass. I miss rappelling out of helicopters. It, it's it so good. Fun. I would, so I, would do, fun. I would do that to this day. It's like, we're, come on up. We're going to jump out of a chopper. Okay. The, I'm in. The problem with ours was uh, the the CO came out with some brand new privates from battalion, um, so they they had that make work project because the CO and RSM don't want them just standing around watching everything. They make them okay, go hold those guidelines. So they'll run over and they're holding onto these ropes, and um, with helicopters they don't stay. Oh, oh, it's funny how many people don't know that a helicopter is not perfectly stable. When it's trying to maintain its its hover, it's doing this all over the place. So the person who's down at the bottom holding my rope wasn't accounting for that. They're holding it like they're locked right on. So the minute I jump off the skid and go underneath. Brakes applied. Yeah, boom, brakes, boom. All that weight went straight to my lumbar spine where we were wearing the West gear. So we had the battery pack right on your yeah. lumbar. All that weight right on that battery. So, for pack. those that don't know what the fuck we're talking about right now, um, when you're doing a helicopter rappel or really any rappel, if there's uh, somebody on the other end of the road who's 
rope who's on the ground, they're holding your line. That's the brakeman. So by applying pressure to your line, arrests your descent. In other words, it stops you. So if somebody's got tension on that line, you're not going nowhere. Locks you out. Locks you the fuck out. <laughs> so you stop dead. <laughs> yeah, they're they're there in case you lose control, like um, the rope burns through your hand or something, or you, the hand slips off so that you don't, uh, not free fall, but so that you're not screaming to the ground and smashing into the ground, which I've seen people do by accident, some on purpose, because you got a rucksack on. So it's like, ah, that'll, that'll absorb the shock. <laughs> but uh, that's what the brakeman is for, so you don't thunder in. And uh, I did not. Three different times going down. Locked out three times. Start going, lock so out. did you backhand your brakeman? I, I wanted to, but the CO was standing right there. I didn't want to be that guy. So I, I just got on with the job, mission before self. Yeah. Took off all my stuff, got ready to go and do our tactical walk um, with snowshoes and everything. And right away, my legs felt like jelly. I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel good. It's not right. Whatever. Pop a couple Tylenol and ibuprofen, whatever. Carry it on. Typical infantry response. Yeah. And uh, got about a kilometer in. And obviously, we're not doing straight line walking. We're doing tactical walking. So it's big winding through the low ground. No cresting hills. Um, and it snowed out there. So there's about three feet of powder, which... Powder in in particular really sucks using snowshoes in because there's nothing to stand on, so you're still falling all the way in, and then your snowshoes are getting stuck in the snow. Uh, about a kilometer in, my back seized up. All my muscles seized right up to my uh, my uh, diaphragm to where I couldn't even breathe. Oh Jesus! Um, so I popped another couple ibuprofen and some more Tylenol, and. Uh, like, our morale was already in the shitter. None of us wanted to be on that exercise because we just got back from tour. Oh, geez, yeah. Where, they were, where we were treated like adults, and they they never had to remind us to clean our rifles. Like, But now we're being treated like we're fresh out of basic training, and we're on BIQ again. And you're all battle hard. Yeah, and we're like, no, this, like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> just let us be. We We know how to do the job. We'll get it done. Just stop, like treating us like shit. Yeah. And uh, so nobody wanted to do this exercise. They'd rather spend time with their family that they haven't seen for the last year. And um, so so we still push on. Um, I continued another three kilometers to our rucksacks, and none of us knew what we needed because the, the exercise was so poorly planned. Nobody knew who was repelling at, at first. Um, last minute they told us we were, so we had these teardrop snowshoes strapped to our small packs in a helicopter where the rotors are like right here. <laughs> tink, 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 tink. Yeah, so you're pretty much having to fly out bent completely over at a 90 degree angle so that your snowshoes aren't hitting the rotor. What type of choppers were you using? Um, we were using the twin Hueys. Yeah, it was the Griffins that we were flying on. Um, so is that like a twin Huey? Is it about the same size? or Similar. I, I, I'm not sure the exact specs. I'm not... Um, aircraft minded. Yeah, no, I, I, I would <laughs> but, know um, if it slapped me in the face. But uh, yeah, the Griffins are what they've. I know it's a Canadians. helicopter. Yeah, it's a helicopter. It's a helicopter. Let's go. Single rotor. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's about it. Um, 
it was fun. I know that much. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those uh, bucket list things that you're checking off. It's too bad I got injured on it, but ever uh, black blackout night fly in a chopper? No. Oh fuck, it's good. That, that'd be cool. Yeah, blackout night fly uh, right off the ground. You know, uh, through a river valley, the Battle River in Wainwright. Mm-hmm. You know, even Wainwright's cool when you do that. Yeah, we did the the blackout. Um, like the contour flying in the C5, not C5, sorry, the C17 as we were flying into Afghanistan. What's the C17? So the C17 is um, what one of the Canadian Forces heavier lift um, cargo. Like a Chinook? Is it a twin rotor? It's, yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Might have four engines on it, I think. It, it kind of looks like a smaller C5 Galaxy. Hmm. Um, so the C seventeen is, um, what are they? Big helicopter. It's a big plane. Big plane. Plane. Is a plane? Okay. Plane. Yeah. So that that came in, uh, and as soon as we hit Afghanistan airspace, lights went to red, and then they started doing the contour fly, which was pretty cool. That is cool. But it's funny how, if you haven't been. On a tour prior to that, you're like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. Woo. Yeah. I, it, it wasn't real. And I found, like, even when we landed and I, I walked out onto the tarmac at Kabul International yeah, We're not Airfield, doing this for like, fun. This is tactics. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at the time, you're like, man, this is the best roller coaster ride of my life. But you walk out onto that tarmac and you're looking around, fully expecting to be shot at the minute you get off the plane. It doesn't happen. Yeah. You walk off. It's all calm. It's administrative. There's no tactical anything going on. You're like, oh, well, that wasn't what I thought. Okay. Well, that's cooler than my first minute in a war zone. You know, we we landed in Zagreb, which really wasn't touched by the war uh, except for the the periphery. Mm -hmm. So you're on, everything's pretty normal. You're on an airport. You get on a bus, you know, kind of, kind of reminded me of going to basic training. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're on the bus. And um, as we got closer and closer to the edges of the town, uh, the town was in less and less good shape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, right at the skirts of um, uh, town through some suburb, and as we're about to go in, uh, into the country roads, I remember an apartment building all peppered. And I'm like, uh, those are bullets and shrapnel <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> making those holes. And then I, uh, you know, had the sudden realization of, oh, uh, violence made that. And we're not a Wainwright at all. <laughs> you know, so it was a gradual kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. to kind of work up to it. And then it was um, a couple weeks in before, you know, shit started getting hairy and you're like, oh, okay, we're in a war. Yeah. With us, like, we had the D-plus days in theater where you you get issued all your mission essential kit, so your night vision goggles, your your actual rifle, because you're given just a random one at the airport. Okay. Um, just for transit. Um, might work, might not. Yeah, pr- pretty much everything. <laughs> you're, you're, you're given your, your ballistic plates and everything that goes into your vest. and Yeah. Um, you're given all the emission-specific kit. Then you do your AWAR briefings, your enemy force briefings, all the briefings you could imagine. So you're, it's a coffee time. Where you're sitting there through all of this, um, which is different because you're sitting there in tans, not in your relish, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Like, oh, well, this is 
I guess I'm in Afghanistan, but I'm not entirely sure yet. <laughs> Is this still exercise? I don't know. Tans um, are cool. Better than relish. They, they finally came to get us. Uh, so July 1st um, was my last day at Camp Phoenix. So it was Canada Day. So we had the two beer per man. And I'm like, I was an alcoholic before I went on tour. Okay. As most of us were. So you had a head start. I had a head start. Yeah. It was nice. Like, I, I figured tour would be my spin dry. And it it was. Yeah. <laughs> but here I am two days into actually being on the ground and we're being given beer again. I'm like, what the hell? So much for spin drive. Yeah, so much for that. Um, but we ended up, uh, they, my guys from my camp came to get us in, our, in the Toyota Land Cruisers to take us to Souter, which was about two kilometers away, two and a half kilometers from this American camp um, by, by road. And uh, we, we ripped through, I remember that drive, like looking out the window at what now is not Wainwright, what is now not Suffield. And you're like, okay, well, this is a little bit more real. But still, it wasn't clicking. And uh, I finally got into my room. We had a Seacan hotel on our camp that we were staying on. I was in the second floor. And the other guy in my room was a Van Du because we were replacing the Van Dus. Je suis désolé. Oui, tabarnak. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, like I, I remember going to sleep that night, and I'm like, oh, that's whatever. We'll see what tomorrow brings. Next morning. No, at, at this point, are you um, uh, noticing the different energy on the people that, are, that were already been there for a while? You, you could tell they were exhausted. Like the guy in my room in particular, like I talked to him a little bit. Did he so, notice the looks on their faces? Like did, did that um, register yet? Not really, no. Yeah, you'd see it today, but at that at the time, it still wasn't really hitting you. No, I was like, "Oh, fellow Canadian Forces member, yeah. cool." And uh, it wasn't till the next morning. The next morning, I woke up to like a jaw shattering boom, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What the fuck was that?" Like it woke me right out of my sleep. I woke up. I'm like, "Where am I? What am I doing?" Like one of those wake ups where you have no idea what the hell is going on. Yeah. Um, right away, I still have my fighting order and stuff beside me um, because we didn't have lockers yet. So I quickly throw it on. I'm in boxers and a t-shirt and I throw on my flip-flops. Combat flip-flops. <laughs> Combat flip-flops. And I, I'm getting ready to go stand too because that, that's usually what you do when something's going down. So yeah. I walk out. Show off your morning wood to everybody. Yeah. Check this out, guys. So we got out and uh, I, I walk out to this landing on the second floor and I'm looking out because all the sirens of the local camps are going off. So Kaya North is not far from us. You could actually see the runways from our camp. And I'm looking over our walls at some of the Afghan huts, like right on the other side of the wall. And the alarms are going off and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like my brain's still not wrapping around it. And then I look over to the east and I see this giant mushroom cloud in the sky. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? About a kilometer and a half from us, the Taliban ended up hitting a, a camp called No Lemon. It was a contractor camp. What they didn't know was that they had a, a section worth or a section minus of guys from the Navy SEALs at that camp. Or maybe they did. Maybe they were the target. I don't know. Um, we, we found this out in our int rep the next day. What year is this again? Uh, 2013. Yeah. And 
Like I remember us like seeing the blast. Well, didn't physically see the blast, but I guess they used a dump truck load loaded with explosive and drove it into the front gate of the camp. And then We're detonated. not fucking around. And then two vans pulled up with a bunch of guys with bomb vests on and AKs, RPKs, PKMs, and RPGs jump out and just try killing as many people as they could before they either detonated or were killed. The Americans, I guess, on the camp seen the bomb vests, so they headshots. And seals are pretty good shots. From, yeah. I, I'd imagine they're pretty good shots. They'd have to be with the training that they get. And they went all headshots. That was what we got in our int rep the next day. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. But I remember standing up there seeing the mushroom cloud and hearing the popcorn going on. I'm like, oh. And then it clicked. Holy shit. There's people actually dying right now. There's a firefight happening a kilometer and a half from us. Then it was real. Then it was real. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it took three days before it became real on the ground. Before yeah. it was like, holy shit, this isn't an exercise anymore. This is real. Like, here we are. How long till you think you settled in? Like uh, the number I usually use is two weeks before you kind of settle in and, and and you just kind of, all right, I'm in the shit. And um, that's what it seems to be. That nervousness, that uh, I don't know what's going on, nervousness kind of subsides and you just kind of settle into it and you're hard, you're ready. What do you think was the average? What did you see? I'd agree with two weeks. Well, it's about two weeks. Yeah, our, our first week in theater, they told us we couldn't work out because we had to attune our bodies to the altitude. Because mm. Afghanistan's extreme. You're in the Hindu Kush mountains, so you're really high. You're considerably, I, I think it was... Uh, yeah, like 12,000? Yeah, about 12,000 feet above sea level. That's fucking up there. Like uh, where we're sitting right now is 3,000. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty high. 12,000 is up there. It is freaking up there. Yeah. And it, it's trying to get used to that and... Um, plus the temperature fluctuations, like during the day when I first got there in July, it was, we were looking at like 43, 44 degrees during the day, nighttime it had dropped down to like 28, but that fluctuation, like 28 is still pretty warm, but when you're going from 44 to 28, it feels like you're in, uh, you're, you're up North and on like Northern, um, Canada. Yeah where you're you're actually in the Arctic. It's that drastic of a, a contrast of temperature. Well, desert cold is cold. It, very cold, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we did our workup training in the Mojave, uh, outside of Camp Pendleton, 29 Palms, that kind of area. Yep. And, uh, yeah, the nights are cold, man. Chilling with the desert tortoises, tortoises hanging out. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Like, I, I've done a couple of domestic operations as well during my service. Um, so in 2010, um, right after we got in battalion, uh, we didn't even clear into battalion. They were like, all right, get down to the MPTF. You have to do briefings. I'm like, oh, okay. Yep. Raj got down there and we, we started work up for op podium, which was the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. All right. So we went out and we were operating out in Whistler, protecting all the back areas, like the back country. What were you doing there? Like you're doing roving patrols? Yep. On uh, snowmobiles. So. And sometimes we do snowshoe patrols. So counterinsurgents patrols. Pretty much, yeah. Interesting. We're doing it with live ammo. No shit. They gave you bullets. They gave us bullets. Oh, yeah. I was like. They don't like giving us bullets while we're in Canada. 
The best part was I was a C9 gutter. Yeah, and so they gave you 200 <laughs> boxes of 200. Yeah, yeah it was fun. It was kind of cool. For, for those that don't know what a C9 is, it's uh, the light section machine gun. Um, what do they call it in the States? The M249 saw. They call it the saw. Yeah, the section automatic weapon saw. So it's uh, you got 200 rounds of belt-fed 5.56 ammo, and you got one on, on the gun, and... Uh, two, three, four more boxes on you, depending on what's going on. And it's not light no. at all. But it's actually, a, it's um, in a section, the C9 gunner, that's kind of the senior position. I mean, nobody wants to hump the fucking thing. But it's, uh, they give it to the person that they think has a good head on their shoulders and knows how to use good judgment. Because it's uh, it makes it rain, man. Mm-hmm. Makes it rain with those little bullets. What they did with us is they gave them to some of the bigger brand new privates in the battalion. Yeah. Um, I was never big and I had that C9 for years. I think it was kind of a a way to, for us to show off, like to to show who we were. Yeah. Are are you able to live up to this or are you just going to be a rifleman? It's like, okay, I'll show you. I I became a surgeon with that thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you're really good with it, you can get single shots off. You know, uh, they're they're meant for a three-round burst every time you pull. But if you just get that, just that sweet spot, you can do single shots with them. Yeah, they're fun. It, it was cool. Okay, we're going to go do a, a patrol today. Our patrol is going to consist of us going up into the Alpine on snowmobiles and rip around in four feet of powder. Okay. And did you see a Yeti? No. I was looking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to. That would now, be cool. You got a C9 in your in your hand. You see a legit Bigfoot. Do you enjoy the moment or do you shoot a Bigfoot? I'm going to enjoy the moment. Now, if it starts making aggressive movements, that, that's yeah, a different yeah, story. Yeah, yeah you're, you're going to get lit up. Yeah. Now, I, I wonder, will I shoot it? Because I really don't want to shoot it. They're pretty rare, but I want to prove that there is one. I think I'd let it live. I don't think I could shoot a Bigfoot. I couldn't either. No, I, 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 I don't I, think I, I could do it. I subscribe to the the concept that uh, that most Native American hunters subscribe to is you don't hunt predators, yeah. with the exce- notable exception of like coyotes and. Now, if he's picking his teeth with a ski pole, you know I might consider yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> the only way I would actually shoot like a bear or a cougar or something would be in self defense. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like I I I believe what Native Americans believe, which is that um, they are are teachers and by learning how those animals hunt is how um, teaches you how to be a better hunter essentially. So by you sparing their life, you actually have a more successful hunt later on. And mm-hmm. I've actually seen this happen. I, I went on a, an elk hunt and like we were out in Wainwright and this, we're not allowed to shoot the coyotes unfortunately, and they're everywhere in Suffield. And this, I had this coyote dead to rights. And I'm like, I could pull the trigger. Nobody would know. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But I, I'm like, obviously, you're not going to. Integrity, those things are beaten into you. They're part of your warrior ethos from the armed forces. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, okay, just, just having them in the crosshairs, my, my finger is still on the trigger guard not in the trigger guard and then 
laying off going, okay, I'm just going to watch this, watch this coyote walk by. I ended up seeing, so we, we ended up uh, putting a good stock on a herd of about 400 head of uh, elk. No kidding. We got pretty close and then some other hunters off to our right. No, they weren't head. behind page wire, were they? No. <laughs> we didn't sneak up on an elk farm? No, definitely not. <laughs> this particular area it was a walk-in, walk-out only, so you couldn't drive in. So if, we were about 13 kilometers in by this point. So if we had just shot something, we would have had to hump 13K back to the truck to grab our sled, 13K back out to grab this thing, and then 13K back to the truck again. So we were like, Ugh. That's a lot. Whatever. We're still, we're still, all of us in our group were Patricia's. Yeah. And we're like, screw it. You, you get that kind of one-upmanship going, <laughs> well, he's not falling out. I'm going to keep going. And your body's just screaming at you to stop. And you're like, nope, I got to keep going. Got to go. Got to yeah. go. Got to go. Well, that's something that... uh is unique to infantry. You know, um, we know how hard we can push ourselves because we did. People can say, I could do that, but you don't know unless you did it. And that's the gift of infantry. It's also why most people go, fuck that. I'm not doing infantry, (laughs) you know, but, um, it's the suck that is the gift. Yeah. You know, embracing the suck, finding out that you can do a lot more than you ever thought was possible. I mean, not most people don't know that they can stay conscious without sleep for five days and still function. Not well, but you can still function. Most people don't know that. You know that. I know that. Most people don't know that. And when people say, well, I don't have any transferable skills in the civilian world, especially after being infantry, it's like you have no idea how important your skills are you you can push harder faster and further because you already have the benchmark mm-hmm. you know very few people have that and it can be used in entrepreneurism and often is there's a lot of successful entrepreneurs that um were military mm-hmm. you know and that is the transferable skill it's the transferable ability that most people don't have and yet we underrate ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, yeah, okay, your rifle skills or, you know, uh, patrolling skills are not going to be very useful mm-hmm. in, in the rest of the world. But um, it's the mindfulness mm-hmm. that comes with it that is useful. The, the, the awareness. We see shit that other people don't see. Mm-hmm. My wife comments it all the, to- all the time. You know, I'm like, hey, did you see that thing over there with the say what how how did you see that or how did you hear that i had no idea i'm like i don't know i just do you know and that's um that's something that if you recognize it you can use it for your benefit yeah tell me about peer support what are um why did you start being a peer helper first what is a peer helper so a peer helper is um somebody who's been in the group for a little while um, that kind of understands how the groups function and the peers that are within that group. Um, from there, um, you, you get asked at some point, um, do you want to step up and be something a bit more, help facilitate, run the group? So that would be the helper role. The, the coordinator role is the actual paid position from Veteran Affairs and DND, Department of National Defense, 
Um, and they're the ones that coordinate all the helpers across their area of responsibility. Um, so once you become that, you get picked for the helper role, then you have to go through all your, your criminal record checks and everything else. Um, and, and from there, they, they actually, you have to do this course. It's a peer helper course where they teach you about mental health continuum, similar to that. Um, they, they teach you um, how to interact with people who are in crisis and, and how to try to calm them down and keep them relaxed or, or bring them back to a, the green or, or at least to the yellow um, so that you could have that conversation. Because I, I know when I'm operating in the orange and red or into the black, like there, people could be telling me, you need to do this. And I'll be like, there's no way I'm, I'm consciously there. Yeah. Cause that amygdala is just running wild. It it has full reign. Your, your big cortex isn't able to get through. So by being able to find like using some of the, the training, um, I, I haven't had to use it yet. Thank God. Um, with the exception of, like the suicide part of it where they teach you how to interact with somebody who's suicidal. Um, I, I had to, unfortunately use that with one of my close friends from battalion who's moving into Lethbridge. Um, he, he was having a really tough go and it came out of nowhere. So I, right away I got on the horn with my boss, the peer coordinator. And I'm like, Hey, um, so this is what happened. I walked him through it. Um, thankfully he got, put in the hospital in Lethbridge. So uh, he has access to all those supports right then and there, but I was able to step in and facilitate what other needs he needed and supports he needed in place. So I was able to reach out and start essentially connecting him to all the supports that should have been there in the first place, but weren't. And uh, I, I think that's the biggest benefit to what I've done so far as a peer helper would be getting to see that firsthand going, okay, you're not just trying to talk somebody down from the ledge. It's everything else so that it doesn't get to that point. And if it does get to that point, then you already have these supports already built in place that go, okay, the, the, you're having financial problems. Is that the number one issue? these organizations offer help like the veterans association food bank does help a lot. Do you have problems with groceries and here we'll connect you to the veterans association food bank in Calgary. They can help you out with that. You're still having financial difficulties. Okay. Let's talk to the military family resource center and they, they have access to a whole bunch of other supports and groups and organizations that most of us don't have access to. That go, hey, okay, these people offer this. Soldier On offers this. These people offer that. We're going to get you enrolled in all these programs and all these assistance and all these supports so that you maybe next time when you're on that downward spiral towards that, you have a support that steps in and acts as a safety net. Going to have a look at some of the comments. Somebody wrote me a uh, novel here. Let's just scroll up. Holy smokes. Oh, that's Rob. Hey, Rob. Rob Lalonde. 
I'm not going to read all that, Rob. I'll read it later. It'll be in the comments on Facebook and on LinkedIn. What are some of the, and this is important, I've asked this, uh, you've heard me ask this on the show many times, but from your perspective, um, let's start with the don'ts. What are some of the no-goes, the go-no-goes for uh, peer support? So some of the mistakes that people can accidentally make when they're trying to be a peer supporter. What's some of the danger zones? Uh, A number one would be doing something that's not needed. Um, If somebody just needs to talk, you need to keep your mouth shut and listen. That's A number one. Um, Too often I find myself wanting to offer advice and it's, you you have to bite your tongue and go, nope, I need to listen to them. That's what they need right now is somebody to listen. And, by by overstepping and offering advice right away diminishes what they're trying to get across or what they're trying to say. And I have this problem all the time with my spouse. She'll be telling me something, how she's feeling, and right away I'm trying to fix it. Yep. And the minute I do that, or I blame myself for it right away, and I completely disregard the whole context of what she was trying to tell me because I make it about me. Yeah. And that's what people don't know that they're doing. You know, yeah. uh, well, I'm just trying to empathize by telling you a time that I went through that. Mm-hmm. You know, this one time at band camp, shut up. You're being a douche. Yeah. You don't mean to be a douche, but you're being a fucking douche. Yeah. Because this is about them. This is their time. This is not your opportunity to tell them how I can empathize because I went through the same thing. And this is what I did about it. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. This is, you get your time later. Right now, this is not your time. This is not the you show. It's the them show. Mm-hmm. So let it be the them show. Yeah. And because uh, if you do it, they're not coming back to you for, you know, maybe once or twice. But we know quite soon uh, the people that make it about themselves. Yeah. You know, and we don't talk to them anymore. You can talk to me anytime. No, I can't. Because every time I talk to you, you make it about you. Yeah. And it ain't about you. Absolutely. Uh, one of the other big don'ts would be putting somebody in a situation that is like a negative coping kind of situation. So, for example, if you know somebody is struggling with alcohol, you go, hey, let's go for a beer. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> go for a coffee. Are you instead. sober now? Um, I, I still, So not the answer is no if you got to go. No, um. I, I still fight. I, I'm still fighting that battle. All right. So no. Um, so no. Because no. that's that's a yes or no. That, that is a no. I am cutting back. I'm focusing on... And that's okay. I say I, that. I I'm not saying that without yeah. judgment. You know, yeah. there's no judgment there. It's, it's, it's cool. But that really is a yes or no. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, at the moment, no. <laughs> there you go. I am working on it. Fucking own that shit. I am working on it. Yes, <laughs> I, I have. I've finally gotten to the point that I realize that I'm using it as a crutch. Ah, and now I'm going okay. Because I, I I listened to your podcast yesterday um, with uh, Jack Riggins. Yeah, and you guys started talking about alcohol, and I'm like, oh yeah, because in the moment you feel like it's good. It's it's helping. Mm-hmm. You, you feel great. And then 
right afterwards, you're like, shit, I don't feel so good. <laughs> Especially like I, I find a it's couple a days after it, it's you, you hit that depression, that depressive low. And then everything feels like shit. You're like, wow. What's your poison? Beer? Hard stuff? What do you like? Uh, kind of fluctuates. Um, uh, my, my favorite is mead. Um, mead. mead. Bring me mead. Uh, well, you, you're wearing God. Mjolnir there on your neck. So. I am, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mead. I, I enjoy mead. I don't think Vikings had man buns though. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and mine isn't either. <laughs> there you go. A little bit of a, little bit of a tail. <laughs> I just can't do long hair on the sides. Drives me nuts. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, um, mead is kind of my go-to. Um, every now and then I'll I'll have some hard stuff, but my stomach doesn't like it. Yeah. Just how it is, which is good. It keeps me from going down that route. I've seen too many people become hardcore alcoholics where they're pissing and shitting themselves in clothes on sleeping wherever. Like we had a lot of those guys in battalion that that was the way they coped. Like most of us cope with alcohol. Drink to the regiment. Drink to Lady Patricia. Drink to the fallen. Yeah, drink to the fallen. Drink for this, drink for that. You have a bad day at work. Like Let's go have a drink. Is, it, is today a one beer or a two beer day? Yeah. This is, is this a one is shot a or a case, two shot? A case day. Yeah. Do you need a double? I need a lineup of doubles. Hey, you want to go to the junior ranks? Okay, yeah, sure. $2 beers. All right, let's go. I'm not sure what it is now, but. No. They had 70 cents beers on the ships when I was, I a, you know, when I was on a Squalmalt. Uh, that was awesome. If you want to be an alcoholic. Yeah. It's much more affordable, especially I was making uh, eight or $900 a month. So, yeah, I need 70 cents beers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, this isn't going to be fucking good. Yeah. Brandon, I'm going to put a pin in it right here. Sure. You know, uh, thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you for yours. And thank you for um, making the time to to do the drive from Lethbridge to to be here today. I appreciate it, brother. Yep. Thank you. VP. VP. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring